the same. You guys are listening to the AltaCast here on MutinyRadio.fm. It is the 16th of May to timestamp this podcast for you here at MutinyRadio.fm. I'm your host, Pam Benjamin, on the AltaCast. LaToya, the Sheriff of Truth, unfortunately cannot be with her with us. Uh, she is infirmed, and we are very sad. We're going to miss her very much. So I put out the call to the world of comedians. Hey, everybody. <laughs> Open house. Anybody want to come in? Come on in. So uh, we'll see what happens today on the AltaCast. If I do have to bring you things alone, it's not a worry. Do not fear. I am prepared. Uh, today we're going to talk about Westworld and humanism and anti-humanism and Martha Stewart. What? Uh, how, do, how did I come about with that? Well, first I start thinking about Westworld because it, it keeps making me think like humanism is that going to be the new racism in the future when we have ai you're a humanist you believe in the power and future of people when then if you do you kind of believe that the the hosts are their own species race sentient beings anyway that show's just blowing my mind left and right so we're gonna talk about humanism and anti-humanism i found an incredible website uh, these people are called the church of euthanasia they say, the one commandment, thou shalt not procreate. The four pillars are suicide, abortion, cannibalism, and sodomy. Uh, the human population on the planet right now, they have a counter. And I believe it's 7,529,756,307891213014. Wow. To save the planet, kill yourself. Anti-humanism. So we're going to read some of their manifesto today, too. Why not? Why not? I mean, uh, and then Martha Stewart, who I love and I can't believe and I'm so happy that she's in the news with Snoop Dogg all the time. And it's great because they have forged a beautiful friendship and uh, she loves weed now, as she always should have. I've been working with her recipes for years. Very easy to put weed in them. Why I'm not making pot pockets is beyond me. Only because it's just, that's a lot more work. The caramels I make are spot on. I made um, pecan caramels today with weed in them, obviously. And I didn't have time to do it this morning, but I'm going to chocolate dip some of them for um, not the whole way, just like halfway, like the seized candy ones. And I'm going to do that for my comedians for the Friday Fantastic Show. Yes. Yes, I am. So that's fun. All right. So I'm insane about uh, about Westworld right now. And they just sent me an email. And it says classified important Westworld progress report. And I'm probably not supposed to share it with you. Um, the Delos research updates. Uh, the inventory checks. And it is so deep. I am so impressed with this particular world that they're creating and yes it's a tv world but they're going really deep like they sent me these there's all of these amazing uh the park is currently experiencing a mild viral outbreak among the guests and as a result all incoming and outgoing traffic is suspended there is no reason for concern everything is under control updates to come when the situation develops oh yeah oh really 
Delos security panel comes in. It's so funny. There's like all of these threads, uh, potential neglectful conduct. It's all of their emails, right? It's from Delos Destinations Corporate Communications to Westworld from Delos Destinations. Hey, I know the board celebration is happening and it's all hands on deck to make sure Journey into Night is nothing short of a Dionysian shit show, but I'd like to remind you that life goes on outside the park. There has to be someone out there that can answer an email. Anyway, the Roadshow experience was a huge success, feeling it won't be the last. I tried to forward along the event recap below from our vendor to your team at Westworld, and I hope to keep, and I keep getting strange messages. Can you ping them to get in touch with HBO Logistics? They need shipping port into ASAP to get the assets back to you. Anyways, there's just, it just keeps going like, it, it really down here was really funny uh it, potential employee misconduct how much is the employee discount i've never actually been able to go to the park not nearly enough sigh uh fuck that i'm grabbing a cleanup tech suit and heading topside on the next mandatory host retrieval ditch the mask throw on a black hat and i'll be blasting my way to parish to pariah in no time that is incredibly stupid, but honestly, the way park coverage has been going, you just might get away with it. That's so funny. That's like they're putting little cookies in that maybe they'll do later or, but I mean, everything's crazy now. So who knows? And they keep messing with the timeline. So it's uh, just amazing. Uh, in employee infractions dear mr o'sullivan this is your first notice informing you that you have failed your living quarters inspection and have been cited for general uncleanliness a second review of your quarters will happen sometime over the next two weeks and a qa reserves the right to conduct this inspection without your prior knowledge should your quarters pass inspection during the second review, no further action will be necessary. However, should your quarters again fail to live up to the standards of a Delos employee, you will receive an official citation. Sincerely, Grace Ma. It's just funny to me because they've got all of this backstory. Um, here's something from Bernard. Possible interdepartmental conflict. Far be it for me to tell you guys how to do your jobs, but several hosts in the Bloody Bender storyline were shot in the face by QA security response team in Sector 23. Some of the hosts are homicidal by design, but they cannot hurt humans. In this instant, three hosts in question are designed to rush headlong at victims, but no employee was in any real danger. Just asking that you remind your team to use voice commands first and shoot as fast, shoot as a last resort. This latest trigger happy response has led to some unnecessary costs since we now have to rebuild the host's cortical shields from scratch. Bernard Lowe. Oh, it's so good. Anyways, um, if you guys want, if you're, I mean, I just feel like Westworld is so, it's so deep and it's making me think about all these crazy things. And now they're just like, giving me all this other stuff that's weird that I'm like, oh, I can read all this and put together other things that I didn't know. Um, so, and here's, and they give you a special little thing here. Uh, this is Inside Westworld with executive producer and director Lisa Joy. So she uh, directed this last fourth episode, if you guys have been watching. And the thing that I love about what Westworld is doing is that uh, 
everything adds. There's nothing there. There's nothing there that takes away from what they're trying to accomplish with their vision, right? Like, so if in a scene there's gotta be a cave and they don't need anything around it, there's nothing else there to distract you. But if you're in a scene where say, uh, the record, she mentions the record players at the beginning on this this interview. Um, So everything adds, nothing takes away, and everything has meaning. And that kind of work as a director is like, top notch right I mean you just just having nothing extra but not just having nothing extra having everything be there add crazy right uh, so this is inside Westworld with director and producer uh, Lisa Joy for me when I first started writing it was mostly poetry and poetry is very visual I feel the same way about the way I approach direction. There might be a theme within the visuals that you're choosing that people aren't consciously picking up on, but that they feel. The co-showrunner discusses her directorial debut and the visual choices she made in one of the series' most revealing episode yet. Lisa Joy, the directorial mind behind Westworld, season two, episode four, The Riddle of the Sphinx, unpacks her creative choices in one of the series' most revealing hours yet. In the episode, we get to spend more time with business mogul James Delos, who's not entirely what he seems. There's a deeper meaning to the record player. We broke the series so that the hosts have small loops, but they interact with bigger loops. The whole thing is like a Swiss watch where all the cycles work together, and in the same way, I needed this theme of loops to be flowing throughout the episode. I wanted the circular motion of the record to serve as the overriding theme of, can we escape the loops in which we are trapped? Ugh. Like, and again, it's we as people, we as, because, you know, fiction is the only way that we can really change people. Literature will save the world if people can feel empathy. If you, I mean, this was a really difficult episode to watch when you're like looking at the truth of what they're saying in a, like it stretches the brain in a way of thinking about people because I know that it's in a fictitious uh, dystopian future but at, but also future past because it's in you know it's like anyways getting ahead of myself just go back to the article pan we went back and forth on how to film the opening shot on the spinning record but I felt strongly that the room should be revealed in a pullback as opposed to a push forward because it gives us less agency we're just passive riders observing from a vantage point that some other force is constricting in the allegory of the hosts, they were only allowed to know or see as much as other people allowed them to see. I wanted to trap the viewer in a similar way and restrict their orientation, make them wait to understand where we are and what we're looking at. The same circular movement of that opening shot is echoed at the end, but with Bernard. He stands at the center of the room, but we track his gaze in the same circular motion. He, like Delos, is passively trying to understand the things transpiring around him. Then, once the circle is complete, we find a change. To Bernard's and our horror, he wasn't just a passive bystander. He made a choice at the end. In his first active step within that sequence, he strides forward and stomps the head of a helpless tech, completing the cycle of violence. And that, to me, 
is the true moment of horror within this episode. The horror scene with the flashing red lights has all the trappings and suspense of horror, but the real existential moment of horror comes at the end when Bernard realizes he's not so different from Delos. That there's a monster in him too. Whether by volition or not, he has blood on his hands. And the question is after that, can he reconcile all the good things he wants to be with the bad things he has done? And Bernard is a host. So like he's already the consciousness. And so when he's having that shakiness, see, I just figured this out, right? When he's getting shakiness, he needs the cortical fluid or whatever, the stem stuff, because that's what happens to the hosts when they when they're watching them and they've been Delos has been alive for you know 37 days on 149 and then they they you know they vaporize him but Bernard wasn't vaporized Bernard worked so why is uh, it was it's but then we're making terrible trials on poor Delos who's being just murdered vaporized and created over and over and what does that mean and we as people what is what is real? What is what is our thought? And what if we're stuck on a loop? Oh, it makes me think so much. It's crazy. And the mirrors featured in the episode. Throughout the episode in each loop, Delos is looking at himself in the mirror. He feels a tension within himself. It's as though he's questioning the nature of his reality. It was really important to me to break out of that mold for the third loop where we pop outside of the room and look in. We realize that him looking at himself wasn't just about his gaze. It was about the gaze of a cruel and detached observer, analyzing and scrutinizing and controlling his every move. Of course, later on that comes to bear in the horror scene where he looks in the mirror and confronts a very different image, but one that is probably more true to what he is going through emotionally. Elsie sees in the cracked reflection of that mirror a man whose identity has been similarly fractured as he literally carves into himself to try to find out who he really is. It's the like objectification. He doesn't know he's the object, but people are watching him. But then all of the talk about mirrors, we just we look in the mirror. Everyone wants to look at themselves from episode three. Similarly, in the end of the Delos arc, Bernard cradles Delos's head as Delos gives his speech about angels and devils. Bernard is in the position of the angel standing above, but has the devil inside him. The same with Delos. Neither man is all dark. That positioning of one mirroring the other is one of the thematic visual threads that I tried to link between storylines. Throughout the Man in Black's arc, Craddock is coming back and haunting him by mirroring his past behavior. He dances with Lawrence's wife like the Man in Black did before killing her. By the end, the man assumes a similar position to Bernard over Delos. He cups Craddock's chin and forces this explosive down his mouth. In that position, he is the avenging angel standing over Craddock's devil, but he's putting an end to Craddock, and in that, he's obliterating and facing his past sins. It's just so deep. Also, a side note, that moment between Delos and Bernard was never scripted as something to be intimate or to be a character moment. One of the many delights that I found in directing is that you plan so many things so meticulously that then go smoothly, but you also have to leave time and space for spontaneous emotional moments to arise. In watching the actors and looking at it, I thought, what if you weren't across the room from each other? What if Bernard was holding, holding Delos's face and looking down at him while he cradled him, and the two men gazing at each other served as a kind of reference to the mirror? A man brought to his knees and exposed as a monster, staring up at a guy who's trying to be an angel. This duality is within each of us. We're not angels or devils purely. 
Delos and Bernard and the man in black and Craddock are essentially serving as each other's mirrors, a symbol of both the worst of what could transpire and the best. Oh, wow. Okay, so there we go. Thank you, Lisa Joy, for giving us an inside look. So now that makes me think about yeah, just manifest everything, but it made me think about humanism and uh, humanism as a progressive life stance that without theism or other supernatural beliefs affirms our ability and responsibility to leave meaningful ethical lives capable of adding to the greater good of humanity. So it's saying there is, we don't have to have God. God is creation of man. Man is the important thing. But it happened in, you know, it came out in the 1300s and 1400s in England uh, when we were moving from, anyways, we're going to get into it today. I'm going to read a bunch of stuff about humanism because um, it's advocating progressive values and equalities for humanists, atheists, and free thinkers. So what we're going to start with today on our little humanism journey uh, Latoya, the sheriff of truth, not being here. I was like, oh, I have to prepare for a show. Holy moly, what am I going to do? Well, first, I'm sorry that I... Anybody who's still with me, thank you for... I'm sorry about... I love Westworld so much, and it just makes me think so much. Um, and so I thought, oh, what's the opposite of dealing with AI? Well, humanism, humanists are going to be racist in the future. They'll be screaming, humanists, humanists! Uh, I read another group of books that was very good but PG-13 by I'm trying to remember I it was I read three of them so I should remember the the whole thing um, they're very good and they're about people that are art people they were and they were engineered that started with my dragon and then it become they end up making soldiers and then there's no more war because we beat the Chinese in the, the Asian war, whatever that happens. And then they all become like coal miners and stuff, but they're like, that's not what we want to do. And then there's a virus released and all the humans die. And there's only a couple humans left. And so it becomes like they have to work together or can they, or do they, or are they people? Are they not people? Anyways, very similar to Westworld thematically in what is it that makes a person? So humanists believe that, it's based on people. There isn't like a God because that's human made. So we as humans made the God, therefore, anyways. So I was like, oh, humanism is going to be a slur. But then it goes in. I was like, well, anti-humanism, that really exists. And so it does. And it's amazing. And we're going to go through that too. But let's start with, are you a humanist? Uh, this is a video that I found. And it's, you know, everything exists on the internet. But I'm curating for you guys. Curating the best stuff I can for you. All right, so this is what makes something right or wrong. That's humanism. Yay! What makes something right or wrong? Some people believe that what is right and wrong never varies from situation to situation and that it can be expressed in constant and unchanging commandments. They often look to religious texts or authorities to discover what they think a god wants them to do. A humanist view of morality is different. 
Humanists do not look to any god for rules, but think carefully for themselves about what might be the best way to live. This approach means we have always to be empathetic and think about the effects of our choices on the happiness or suffering of the people, or sometimes other animals, concerned. We have to respect the rights and wishes of those involved, trying to find the kindest course of action or the option that will do the least harm. We have to consider carefully the particular situation we find ourselves in and not just take any rule or commandment for granted. We have to weigh out the evidence we have available to us about what the probable consequences of our actions will be. This way of thinking about what we should do is explicitly based on reason, experience and empathy and respect for others, rather than on tradition or deference to authority. It might sound hard, but luckily most of us do it most of the time without really thinking about it. Morality is not something that comes from outside of human beings, gifted to us by an external force like a god. When we look at our closest relatives in the animal world, we see the same basic tendencies we recognize in ourselves. Affection, cooperation, all the behavior needed to live in groups and thrive. It is clear that our social instincts form the basis of morality and that they are a natural part of humanity. Of course, that is not the end of the story. The long experience of tens of thousands of years of human beings living in communities has developed and refined our morality, and we are all the lucky inheritors of that hard work. But it does not mean that there are not people who do harm or make bad choices. But ultimately, morality comes from us, not from any god. It is to do with people, with individual goodwill and social responsibility. It is about not being completely selfish, about kindness and consideration towards others. Ideas of freedom, justice, happiness, equality, fairness and all the other values we may live by are human inventions. And we can be proud of that as we strive to live up to them. That's humanism. Yay, humanism. Uh, it doesn't sound so bad. So, I mean, it, it, it stands to reason that that if humans made all of those ideas, then humans also made God or the concept of God. But then why do we need an external something saying this is right and this is wrong when it comes from us, from humans? Because if humans created fairness and equality and freedom and all of these ideas, uh, but I guess some people like to believe that God created those ideas? Uh, okay. Let's look at the latest articulation of what it means to be humanist. Uh, humanism and its aspirations, Humanist Manifesto 3, a successor to the Humanist Manifesto of 1933. 
All right. Humanism is a progressive philosophy of that without supernaturalism affirms our ability and responsibility to leave ethical lives of personal fulfillment that aspire to the greater good of humanity. So basically, we don't need a supernatural power to be happy and to serve our fellow man. The life stance of humanism, guided by reason, inspired by compassion, and informed by experience, encourage us to live life well and fully. It evolved through the ages and continues to develop through the efforts of thoughtful people who recognize that values and ideals, however carefully wrought, are subject to change as our knowledge and understandings advance. This document is part of an ongoing effort to manifest in clear and positive terms the conceptual boundaries of humanism, not what we must believe, but a consensus of what we do believe. It is in this sense we are affirming the following. Knowledge of the world is derived by observation, experimentation, and rational analysis. Humanists find that science is the best method for determining this knowledge as well as for solving problems and developing beneficial technologies. We also recognize the value of new departures in thought, the arts, and inner experience, and each subject to an analysis by critical intelligence. Okay, so here's the one problem is that humanism seems to rely on the crux of critical thought. And we have systematically culled critical thought from our education since 2001. So how do we get people to have critical thought? I guess if you have critical thought, then you wouldn't necessarily believe in the existence of a God because you critically break it apart. And then people who believe say, well, it's all faith, isn't it? But science isn't faith. Uh, science, you're trying to prove something, right? All right, here we go. Going, Moving on. Humans are an integral part of nature, the result of unguided evolutionary change. Humanists recognize nature as self-existing. We accept our life as all and enough, distinguishing things as they are from things as we might wish or imagine them to be. We welcome the challenges of the future and are drawn to and undaunted by the yet-to-be-known. Ooh, it's constantly changing and we have the power to change. I mean, could you, so in the sixties, sci-fi, they were flip phones. Then we got flip phones in the eighties, sci-fi. It was screens that you'd wave in the sky. And now we have pads and touchscreen technology. So are we not just doing back technology on our thought? Metaphysics, if you, once you create an idea, the idea exists as thought because thought is real. Cause thought, cause I, I guess Thought is not, well, thought is real. Maybe when it becomes words, is thought real? Like that's the tough thing. So, but once it's communicated to someone else and it exists, it exists there as a text or as whatever, as a radio podcast or what have you. I'm grappling, sorry. Ethical values are derived from human need and interest as tested by experience. Humanists ground values in human welfare shaped by human circumstances, interests, and concerns and extend to the global ecosystem and beyond. We are committed to treating each person as having inherent worth and dignity and to making informed choices in a context of freedom consonant with responsibility. Yeah, hell yeah. Uh, 
this is I, I think I'm a humanist everybody I keep calling myself a socialist but maybe I'm a humanist I think that socialism exists within humanism because humanism is a bigger idea that encompasses more than just socialism but I think socialism exists inside of that concept treating we are committed to treating each person as having inherent worth and dignity Oobity boobity boop that is some that is not happening right now in our world is it um some people are worth more than others because they make more money because we've put a human's worth as their monetary number and it has nothing to do that there's an inherent worth with being human or not i mean right now the our where we're living says not but that i mean it goes back to animal farm uh all animals are equal but some animals are more equal than others when they're in charge and stuff good book life's fulfillment emerges from individual participation in the service of humane ideals we aim for our fullest possible development and animate our lives with a deep sense of purpose finding wonder and awe in the joys and beauties of human existence have you ever seen such splendor it's challenges and tragedies and even in the inevitability and finality of death humanists rely on the rich heritage of human culture and the life stance of humanism to provide comfort in times of want and encouragement in times of plenty right encouragement in times of plenty don't rest on your laurels move ahead keep striving keep working the fullest possible development sweet the awe and joys and beauty of human existence. It's challenges and tragedies. Uh, it sounds just like what's going on with Westworld. Humans are social by nature and find meaning in relationships. Humanists long for and strive toward a world of mutual care and concern, free from cruelty and its consequences, where differences are resolved cooperatively without resorting to violence. Yay! Oh my God! How have I never... How have I... This is... How would we, I've been calling myself a socialist all this time and that's not, I mean, Marxism is like rise up against your oppressor and nothing happens unless there's a revolution. But this is saying what I believe cooperatively without resorting to violence. But then we get into that utopian socialism. Humanism came before utopian socialism, but is that our humanists, utopian socialists? Ah, ah, (laughs) The joining of individuality with the interdependence enriches our lives, encourages us to enrich the lives of others, and inspires hope of attaining peace, justice, and opportunity for all. I love this stuff. I can't, I mean, holy Toledo. Humanism. Good without a God. I love it. American Humanist Association, everybody. I'm reading from Advocates Progr- Advocating Progressive Values and Equality for Humanists, Atheists, and Free Thinkers. Ways to give. You can go and you can donate online for them. Uh, you could also go to mutinyradio.fm. You can donate online to us because I feel like I'm a humanist. I am working uh, to benefit society. This is the next one. Working to benefit society maximize, maximizes individual happiness. Progressive cultures have worked to free humanity from the brutalities of mere survival and to reduce suffering, improve society, and develop global community. We seek to minimize the inequities of circumstance and ability, and we support a just distribution of nature's resources and the fruits of human effort so as many as possible can enjoy a good life. Amen! Ha <laughs> ha! 
I love this stuff. Humanists are concerned for the well-being of all, are committed to diversity, and respect those of differing yet humane views. We work to uphold the equal enjoyment of human rights and civil liberties in an open secular society and maintain it as a civic duty to participate in the democratic process and a planetary duty to protect nature's integrity, diversity, and beauty in a secure, sustainable manner. Thus engaged in the flow of life, we aspire to this vision with the informed conviction that our humanity has the ability that humanity has the ability to progress toward its highest ideals the responsibility for our lives and the kind of world in which we live is ours and ours alone this was a humanist manifesto it's a trademark of the american humanist association 2003 and i love it i love it I'm like, I'm a, I, I read the first two things and it's like, are you a humanist? Yeah, actually, I am a humanist. Here we go. Uh, humanist philosophy and perspective. Because I have constantly, I have new jokes where I talk about perspective on stage and I say, hey, audience, uh, I want to get intimate with you right now. And uh, I had a nervous breakdown a couple weeks ago. You guys... If you've been listening to the AltaCast, you know I have a nervous breakdown like every week. But the taxes really threw me for a loop and I was really losing my mind. And I smoked some pot and gained some perspective. It was really good. So I'm screaming. I'm screaming in my apartment. When am I going to get a win? Because of my taxes and the stuff. And I'm just freaking out. I'm crying. I'm sobbing. And then outside my apartment building in the streets of the Tenderloin is a man looking at himself in a window uh, screaming, fuck my life! Fuck my life! And I was screaming inside my apartment and he was screaming outside my apartment and I was like, perspective. <laughs> I have an apartment, so... Calm the fuck down, Pam. You're fine. Fucking <laughs> get some fucking perspective on this one because you're inside. Pay the damn taxes. I did, I paid the taxes. But it, you know, freaked me out. Anyways, The Humanist Philosophy in Perspective by Fred Edwards. What sort of philosophy is humanism? To listen to its detractors, one would imagine it to be a doctrine, doctrinaire collection of social goals justified by an arbitrary and dogmatic materialist atheist worldview. Leaders of the religious right often say that humanism starts with the belief that there is no God, that evolution is the cornerstone of the humanist philosophy, that all humanists believe in situation ethics, euthanasia, and the right to suicide, and the primary goal of humanism is the reestablishment of a one-world government. And indeed, most humanists are non- theistic and have a non-absolutist approach to ethics, support death with dignity, and value global thinking. But such views aren't central to the philosophy. To understand just where humanism begins, as well as discover where such ideas fit into the overall structure, it's necessary to present humanism as a hierarchy of positions. Certain basic principles need to be set forth first, those ideas that unite all humanists and form the foundations of the philosophy. Once this is done, humanist conclusions about the world can follow. Conclusions which, by the nature of scientific inquiry, must be tentative. Then, after that groundwork has been laid, appropriate social policies can be recommended, recognizing the differences of opinion that exist within the humanist community. From this approach, people can see humanism in perspective. 
and in that way, in a way that reveals its non-dogmatic and self-correcting nature. The ideas of humanism then can be organized into practical structure along the aforementioned lines. Even though all humanists don't communicate the philosophy in this way, it's fair to say that most humanists will recognize this basic presentation as accurate. Basic principles. One, we humanists think for ourselves as individuals. There is no area of thought that we are afraid to explore, to challenge, to question, or to doubt. We feel to inquire and then to agree or disagree we feel free to inquire and then agree or disagree with any given claim. We are unwilling to follow a doctrine or adopt a set of beliefs or values that doesn't convince us personally. We seek to take responsibility for our decisions and conclusions, and this necessitates having control over them. Through this unshackled spirit of free inquiry, new knowledge and new ways of looking at ourselves and the world can be acquired. Without it, we are left in ignorance and subsequently are unable to improve our condition. Like, it, it's like, I can't believe I'm 43 years old and I haven't heard about humanism. You know, I probably studied it in college and just wasn't paying attention because I was, it was probably like one of those weeder classes like humanities or something where I was just smoking too much pot. So we trying to weed me out weeder class. Uh, Two, we make reasoned decisions because our experience with the pro now. I see. I don't really make reasoned decisions because I usually drink a lot. So it's like I'm like let my decisions go to the wind. <laughs> uh, don't let Blackout Pam make decisions because she will take that shot of whiskey after dark and she will feel crappy the next day. No whiskey after dark. That's basic principle number two in the drunken hobosity of Pam. It's a new religion. We make reasoned decisions because our experience with uh, approaches we make experience decision because our we make reason decisions because our experience with approaches that abandon reason convinces us because our experience with approaches that abandon this one's this one's worded strangely or i just lost how to make words make sense we make reason decisions because our experience with approaches that abandon reason convinces us that such approaches are inadequate and often counterproductive for the realization of human goals. When reason is abandoned, there is no court of appeal where the differences of opinion can be settled. We find instead that any belief is possible if one's thinking is driven by arbitrary faith, authority, revelation, religious experience, altered states of consciousness, or other substitutes for reason and evidence. Therefore, in matters of belief, we find that reason, when applied to the evidence of our senses and our accumulated knowledge, is the most reliable guide for understanding the world and making our choices. Approaches that ab abandoning reason. That's crazy. It's like, um, but I mean, hey, people have, exper I've experienced ghosts. Like I totally believe in my ghost experiences. I 100% believe that I've seen ghosts and that they've communicated with me when I was in that theater, the Sledgehammer Theater in San Diego that used to be a morgue, that the old green room was where they embalmed the people and then it was like a church that got turned into a theater. I absolutely believe that I saw ghosts um, during a during the Devil's River, which was a play that was written by witches. Like I absolutely 100% believe that that was real. And I thought, and thought is real, so what is real? You question the nature of your own reality. Three, 
We believe our understanding of the world on what we can perceive with our senses and comprehend with our minds. Anything that's said to make sense should make sense to us as humans, else there is no reason for it to be the basis of our decisions and actions. Supposed transcendent knowledge or intuitions that are said to reach beyond human comprehension cannot instruct us because we cannot relate concretely to them. The way in which humans accept supposed transcendent or religious knowledge is by arbitrarily taking a leap of faith and abandoning reason and the senses. We find this course unacceptable, since all the supposed absolute moral rules that are adopted as a result of this arbitrary leap are themselves rendered arbitrary by the baselessness of the leap itself. Furthermore, there's no rational way to test the validity of truth or transcendent or religious knowledge to comprehend the incomprehensible. As a result, we are committed to the position that only one thing can be called knowledge, that it uh, is that which is firmly grounded in the realm of human understanding and verification. All right. Because leaps of faith are arbitrary. Though we take a strict position on what constitutes knowledge, we aren't critical of the sources of ideas. Often intuitive feelings, hunches, speculation, or flashes of inspiration prove to be excellent sources of novel approaches, new ways of looking at things, new discoveries, and new concepts. We don't disparage those ideas derived from religious experience, altered states of consciousness, or the emotions. We merely declare that testing these ideas against reality is the only way to determine their validity as knowledge. And our experience creates our reality, so everything is arbitrary. Human knowledge isn't perfect. We recognize that the tools for testing knowledge, the human senses and human reason, are fallible, thus rendering tentative all of our knowledge and scientific conclusions about nature and the world. What's true for our scientific conclusions is even more so for our moral choices and social policies. These latter are subject to continual revision in the light of both the fallible and tentative nature of our knowledge and constant shifts in social conditions. To many, this will seem an insecure foundation upon which to erect a philosophy. But because it deals honestly with the world, we believe it is the most secure foundation possible. Efforts to base philosophy on superhuman sources and transcendent realities in order to provide a greater feeling of security only end up in creating illusions about the world that then result in errors when these illusions become the basis for decisions and social policies. We humanists wish to avoid these costly errors and have thus committed ourselves to facing life as it is and to the hard work that such an honest approach entails. We have willingly sacrificed the lure of an easy security offered by simplistic systems in order to take an active part in the painstaking effort to build our understanding of the world and thereby contribute to the solution of the problems that have plagued humanity through the ages. I'm 100% on board with everything that's happening here <laughs> with this humanism stuff. I really like all the big words. And I, I like this idea that, you know, that the supernatural God on a patriarchal idea of God on a cloud striking us down. And even some of the biblical texts, like I get so confused by the Bible. I'm like, God is mean. Because humans are, because we make really bad decisions. I mean, that's, can we actually be left to our own devices? Maybe the opposite of humanism is like control, is fascism or control, like saying all the people are dumb and I should be in control of them. Or this is how we should use our resources. Are people okay enough to be, 
I, I mean, are, are they are they intelligent enough, knowledgeable enough to work together as a group? At this point, I don't know. Do, do people understand words like uh, painstaking? Now that was the wrong. That was I was looking at uh, necess, necessitates. That's a good word. Uh, okay. Number six, we maintain that human values only make sense in the context of human life. A supposed non-human-like existence after death cannot then be included as a part of the environment in which our values must operate. The here and now physical world of our senses is the world that is relevant for our ethical concerns, our goals, and our aspirations. We therefore place our values wholly within this context. Were we to do otherwise, to place our values in the wider context of a merely hoped-for extension of the reality we know, we might find ourselves either foregoing our real interests in the pursuit of imaginary ones, or trying to relate human needs here to a very different set of non-human needs elsewhere. We get 12 mansions in heaven! We won't sacrifice the ethical good life here unless it can be demonstrated that there is another life elsewhere that necessitates a shift in our attention, and that... This other life bears some relation and commonality with this one. Aliens. Or AI. I mean, so humanism sort of encompasses the idea of of Westworld, where when we, if we are able to create a consciousness that is able to be in this reality with us, that makes decisions based on what it sees, isn't that humanism? Ooh. What's a soul? Is it in our brain? Wait, what? Did we make up the did we make up the concept of a soul? That's supernatural, right? Or but no, we deal with it with our own existence. So it's real. We ground our ethical decisions and ideals in human need and concern, as opposed to the alleged needs and concerns of supposed deities or other transcendent entities or powers. Thetans. We measure the value of a given choice by how it affects human life. And in this, we include our individual selves, our families, our society, and the peoples of the earth. If higher powers are found to exist, powers which we we must respond, we will still base our response on the human need and interest in any relation with these powers. But this is because all philosophies and religions we know are created by humans and can't, in the final analysis, avoid the built-in bias of human perspective. This human perspective limits us to human ways of comprehending the world and to human drives and aspirations as motivation for us motive forces. And eight, we practice our ethics and living content rather than an idea. We practice our ethics in a living context rather than an ideal one. Though ethics are ideals, ideals can only serve as guidelines in life situations. This is why we oppose absolutistic moral systems that attempt to rigidly apply ideal moral values if the world were itself ideal. We recognize that conflicts and moral dilemmas do occur and that moral choices are often difficult and cannot be derived from simplistic yardsticks or rules of thumb. Moral choices often involve hard thinking, diligent gathering of information about the situation at hand, careful consideration of the immediate and future consequences, and a weighing of alternatives. Living life in that manner promotes the good or even knowing what choices are good or promotes the good or even knowing what choices are good isn't always easy so when we declare our commitment to a humanist approach to ethics we are expressing our willingness to do the intensive thinking and work that a moral living that moral living in a complex world entails and all i can think about that is my second abortion <laughs> right 
<laughs> like, moral choices often involve hard thinking, diligent gathering information about the situation at hand. I, you know, they say th the religious right right now is still all inside our uteruses and trying to make choices for us. And it's like, okay, but really, I, I can't. Like, I can't even take care of my boyfriend right now. I, I can't, I just want to do open mics all the time. I can't have a baby and go out to every open mic I want. I, it would be, if I would have had that baby years ago, three, it'd be like three now. Oh my God, I wouldn't have the station. There's no way I would have been able to handle it. So like, I'm looking at my life and my decisions and going, well, should I have done this procreation thing? Or would I just be angry at the child? Uh... I, I, I don't I don't know so it's humanist it's it's just humanist uh, hey that's good stuff that's there's some humanism for you guys today uh, let's listen to a nice little thing about humanism one more and then we'll be back on the AltaCast with anti-humanism the church of euthanasia the four pillars being suicide abortion cannibalism and sodomy Save yourself, kill the planet, or no, save the planet, kill yourself. We're going to read some of their precepts and see what that's about. Uh, and then we'll get into some Martha Stewart here on the AltaCast. I miss you, LaToya. I miss you. I miss you. Philosophy is an odd thing. Um, when we use the word in everyday speech, you sometimes hear it hilariously. They say, oh, uh, oh, it, it's never good to be late. That's my philosophy. <laughs> you think that's a, that's a generous, generous ascription of that rather dull precept to call it a philosophy. But, but it's odd how philosophers, generally speaking, at least the ones I've read or the ones I um, you know, value, don't have, in that sense, a philosophy. There is no particular Socratic or Nietzschean or Kantian way to live your life. They don't offer ethical codes and standards by which to live your life. They don't offer a philosophy to follow. They just simply raise an enormous number of questions, mostly. So in, that, in the sense that you, you put the question, is there a philosopher that's important to me? Well, I, I mean, I, I, I loved really the sort of Bertrand Russell grand sort of tour of, of philosophy, the history of, of philosophy from the pre-Socratics, pre as they're called, um, Zeno and so on, uh, through to Socrates and Plato and, and Aristotle. I, I never quite liked Aristotle. But, um, I think that's partly, although he was obviously a genius and a brilliant, and he invented logic, so what's not to like? Um, I think it was his influence on the, on, the, on, the, on the medieval mind was probably rather pernicious and unfortunate and all those categories and things. But when it opened up with, I suppose, Spinoza and then, but then Cantry in, the, in the, 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 the Enlightenment era. Oh, and actually Locke, I did like Locke. Um, uh, he was a fine philosopher. But they don't, I mean, what's so great about them is that they just... Yeah, they're quite scary when you think of the word philosopher, and especially if it's logic and symbolic logic, and you get onto Hegelian philosophy. It's incredibly difficult to read, I find, and and you follow for about. Oh, it's like trying to grab a salmon. You know, you, the harder you clutch at it, the the more it springs, slips out of your hand, and whoa, it's gone, and you chase it again, and oh, what was that? And you feel very stupid, but. 
the um, I think the beauty of, of questioning and simplicity that you get from Kant in particular, I think, is just amazing because it's it's like um, it's like they say of simple mathematical laws you know, that make fractals. The the tiniest little elegant observation about or question about something just spins out these immensely complex things that make you rethink everything. So. Yes, I, I think philosophy is a really important um, dimension, but I think in our age we tend to be rather sloppy about it. We either we either think Buddhism is philosophy, which you know, or some sort of Eastern thing about being nice and spiritual, and that that'll do, which is fine. I mean, you know, obviously I believe in kindness and niceness and lots of spiritual things, but. The real intellectual rigor and quest of logic is something that I'm afraid takes incredibly hard work. And we live in an age in which hard work is, if not actively deprecated or denigrated, it is um, run away from or ignored. It's sort of people frown at you and say, well, that's a bit dull and stupid. Why can't we just short circuit it and talk about like spirit? Well, yeah, you can say spirit, but if you think that's philosophy and if you think that's that's good enough. The most important philosophy, I think, is that even if it isn't true, you must absolutely assume there is no afterlife. You cannot for one second, I think, abrogate the responsibility of, of, of believing that this is it. Because if you think you're going to have an eternity in which you can talk to Mozart and, and, and Schopenhauer, in, in, on a cloud and learn stuff and, you know, really get to grips with knowledge and understanding. And so you won't bother now. I think you're, it's a terrible, a terrible mistake. It may be that there is an afterlife and I'll look incredibly stupid, but at least I would have had a crammed pre-afterlife, a crammed life. So to me, the most important thing is, um, you know, uh, as Kipling put it, you know, to fill every 60 seconds um, with no, what is it? To fill every unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth of distance run, you know, absolutely. Uh, so that's all I'm saying, I suppose, is that, um, is that it, there's no point wasting time um, being lazy. Though, of course, indolence in a divine way, axidy, has its, um, has its advantages. Oh, shut up, Steve. Okay, next one. It's interesting. Um, Atheism uh, comes in for rather a bad press, and I suppose I'd rather describe myself as a humanist. I, a human, I don't believe in God. I don't believe there is a God. If I were to believe in a God, I would believe in gods. I think monotheism is the really ghastly thing. That is the absolutely staggering, to me, misapprehension. I can perfectly see why anybody might imagine that each thing, each thing that grows, each phenomenon that we that accompanies us accompanies us on our journey through life the sky the mountains spirits of nature i can imagine why man would wish to wish to endow them with an inner inner something an inner animus um, that they would call the god of that thing i can see that it, it's a beautiful and charming way of looking at it and i can understand the greek idea that there are these you know these principles of of um, lightning or or of war or of uh, wisdom and that, that to embody them to personify them into athena or ares or whichever god you want makes enormous sense but to say that there is one only god who made it all and who is you know that is just what why who said where come on 
And I love how I love how when people watch, I don't know, a David Attenborough or a Discovery Planet um, type thing, you know, where you see the absolute phenomenal majesty and complexity and bewildering beauty of nature and you stare at it and, and then and you somebody next to you goes and how can you say there's no god look at that and then five minutes later you're looking at the life cycle of a parasitic worm whose job is to bury itself in the eyeball of a little lamb and eat the eat the eyeball from inside while the lamb dies in horrible agony and then you turn to them and say, yeah, where is your God now? You know, I mean, you, got, you, can't, you can't just say there's a God because the world is beautiful. You have to account for bone cancer in children. You have to account for the fact that almost all animals in the wild live under stress with not enough to eat and will die violent and bloody deaths. There is not, there is not any way that you can just choose the nice bits and say that means there is a God and ignore the true fact of what nature is. The wonder of nature is, must be taken in its totality. And it is a wonderful thing. It is absolutely marvelous. And the idea that an atheist or a humanist, if you want to put it that way, doesn't marvel and wonder at reality, at the way things are, is nonsensical. The point is we wonder all the way. We don't just stop and say, that which I cannot understand I will call God, which is what mankind has done historically. That's to say, God was absolutely everything a thousand or two thousand years ago because we understood almost nothing about the natural world. So it could all be God. And then as we understood more, God receded and receded and receded. So suddenly now he's barely anywhere. He's just in those things we don't understand, which are important. But uh, um, I think... It just is such an insult to humanity. And the Greeks got it right. The Greeks understood perfectly that if there were divine beings, they are capricious, unkind, malicious mostly, temperamental, envious, and mostly deeply unpleasant. Because that, that you can say, well, yes, all right, if there's going to be God or gods, then you have to, conf you have to admit that they're very, at the very least capricious. They're certainly not consistent. They're certainly not all-loving. I mean, really, it's just not good enough, is it? You know, if we empower ourselves with responsibility over our actions, responsibility over our destinies, and responsibility for directing and maintaining and creating our own ethical and moral frameworks, is the most important thing really isn't it because perhaps the greatest insult to humanism is this idea that mankind needs a god in order to have a moral framework it's I mean, there's a there's a very clear way of, de of demonstrating logically how absurd that is because the warrant for that logical framework that, uh, for, for that moral framework that comes from god is always tested against man's own morals um, it's a complicated argument, but I mean, that's, you know, it's, it's the standard one, which is pretty uh, unanswerable. But the, the, the idea that, uh, that we, we don't know right from wrong, but we have to take it from words put down in a book two, three, four, five, six thousand years ago and dictated to rather hot-headed neurotic desert tribes um, is, is just insulting. I mean, it's just, no, I mean, it, you know, if there were a God, he would want us to be better spirited than to take his word for everything, you know? wouldn't he? If he gave us free will, would he really want us to say, no, I have to abide by everything that's written in this book? 
uh, all the laws of circumcision and of, and of eating and of um, and what to do with menstruating women, I'm going to obey those written down there. I won't think for myself because that's not required of me. Come on. It's just not good enough. And, and, and you know, I, I, I have no quarrel with individuals who are, who, wish, you know, who are devout and who have faith. I'm not, I don't want to mock them. I, I really don't. But damned if I'm going to be told by them what to do with my body or damned if I'm going to have the extraordinary battles won by enlightenment over, over the past 400 years um, to have that, those battles um, abnegated by, by a, a new dark ages. It's, it's the, you know, it, the battle lines must be drawn. Music uh, in, in, in its time, but I mean that's a, that's a function of history. You know, the fact is that the composers always write for power uh, because they're all power and money, and it so happened that, that in the period when polyphony all the way through to the classical and, and, and early romantic era, the, all the power and the money was with the church. So some great masses and um, some some great choral music and some great oratorios were written um, from obviously the, the, the Baroque age being the the sort of pinnacle of that, but all the way through to, 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 to the uh, Mozart's final works and his Requiem and, and Beethoven's Missa Solemnis and, you know, some, and, and um, Mendelssohn and so on. There have been some marvellous religious works and uh, in painting similarly. But that's because the, these, these were princes. They were princes of the church. They were prince archbishops who, who employed Mozart. The, the, these, were, these were not spiritual beings who inculcated these composers with the d sense of the divine that makes the music divine. The glory of Verdi's Requiem or Mozart's Requiem or, or, or Bach's pieces is that they are fantastically, incredibly human. And like all great human things, they reach for the infinite. They reach for beauty. A religious person would call that the divine. You could call it the numinous, you could call it anything else, but uh, um, certainly uh, is that religion has been good for that and good for architecture because it has required an enormous, it required enormous buildings for the, uh, for the shepherding of people in, in order to, 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 to do the services and they spend a lot of money on it. And, and so they're rather glorious buildings. You, you've got to hand them, hand them that. Um, did they make the trains run on time? No, they didn't do that. Um, that's about it really. Uh, no, and there are some kind individual people, I mean, very kind people who, who give to the poor and look after the sick and so on. But it's not necessary and sufficient uh, as, as, a, as, a, as a justification for religion, because there are plenty of people who are not religious who are also kind to the sick and good to the poor and, and, and care about you know, people's well-being. Yes, oh, very much so. I mean, Trevor Huddleston and uh, uh, um, Archbishop um, uh, Tutu from, from South Africa are two good examples who, who, who uh, were both genuine men of their church, or uh, obviously Huddleston is dead, but uh, Tutu's still alive, and uh, who both fought a, a terrible injustice and used all the authority of their position amongst their believers, and, uh, and but very bravely spoke out, um, sometimes against the wishes of the church hierarchies. Some liberation the uh, the theologists uh, uh, who have, um, you know, some of them mad communists, some of them just decent liberals who fought against the uh, hideous doctrines of the Roman Catholic Church, for example. And there are individual voices who, who are raised um, in conscience against uh, the, the bureaucracy and the dogma and the doctrine of the churches. And, you know, certainly, of course, individuals, um, 
uh, in, uh, you know, Bonhoeffer, for example, in Germany, the Lutheran uh, minister who, 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 who spoke out against Hitler. Um, you know, they're, they're, of course, they've been um, good and fine um, um, religious people. And the Dalai Lama seems rather charming. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I, it's terrible. I don't come over as some terrible anti-ecclesiastical figure. But. All right, that was Stephen Fry on the importance of unbelief. Hell yeah. You guys are listening to Mutiny Radio. Here, mutinyradio.fm. It's the AltaCast. I'm your host, Pam Benjamin. Sadly, LaToya is not with us today. Uh, that means I've been talking about humanism, Westworld. We're going to get into anti-humanism. Oh, my gosh. Which almost seems like a... It almost seems a lot like uh, humanism. But, uh, all right, here we go. Anti-humanism is a relatively new philosophy which emerged along with the critique of industrialism in the modern era, particularly after World War I. Anti-humanism gathered strength from the nihilism of the post-1960s counterculture and is now evolving rapidly. So there's already a wide spectrum. At the moderate end are mainstream novelists such as Kurt Vonnegut, Breakfast of Champions, Margaret Atwood, uh... Onyx and Crake, and Paul Thoreau, Ozone. All of these books contain anti-human concepts and observations, though their authors probably wouldn't use the word. There are also many anti-human movies, too many to list, but at a minimum, Eraserhead by David Lynch, THX 1138 by George Lucas, and The Soylent Green. Soylent Green is people, is people, should be mentioned. At the extreme end are actual organizations such as the Church of Euthanasia, VHEMT, Voluntary Human Extinction Movement, and GLF, Gaia Liberation Front. In the sciences, anti-humanism is usually expressed by paleontologists and biologists, and increasingly by climate scientists. Some current examples are Jeremy Jackson and Kevin Anderson, Edward O. Wilson is best known for his work on biological diversity, but he was also the first biologist to seriously propose that intelligence snuffs itself out. And this solves Fermi's paradox. We don't receive messages from the stars by the time an alien life form has enough power to transmit that far. It's already on the threshold of annihilating itself. And the odds of its brief blaze of glory lining up with ours are infinitesimal. And this is closely related to the view that life, particularly human life, creates short-term order at the cost of accelerating the entropy of its environment. In the stark contrast, the idealistic Gaia theory. For example, paleontologist Peter Ward's Medea hypothesis demolishes the notion that life is self-regulating and compares life to a drunk stumbling around in a darkened room. Anti-humanism can be usefully contrasted with humanism. Humanism derives from the ancient Greek notion that man is the measure of all things and that without human existence, nothing would have value. Concealed within this is the assumption that only humans experience value. This assumption has no basis in biology, but is nevertheless one of the pillars of modern civilization because it provides justification for extermination of other species. The denial of intrinsic value to non-human life is the essence of speciesism, and it's closely related to the dogma of dominion. 
i.e. that it's man's destiny to subjugate all of the living things. A concept that Edward O. Wilson attacked in his con consilence, con consilience. Beyond humanism is transhumanism, sometimes known as futurism or extraplanism. This is the belief that not only is man the measure of all things, but the only part of him that matters is his mind. And the sooner his mind is freed from the limitations of biology, the better. The moderate form of life extension is cryogenics, while the extreme form is downloading human intelligence into robots and conquering outer space, like the Daleks on Doctor Who. Famous transhumanists include Ray Kurzweil and Stephen Hawking, who recently stated that humanity's only hope to escape from other planets, our only hope is to escape to other planets before we destroy this one. Anti-humanists regard transhumanists as arch enemies due to their flagrant unconcern for non-humans. From the anti-human point of view, transhumanism bears a striking resemblance to Christianity. Both are escapists, characterized by unshakable belief that humans belong somewhere else, i.e. heaven slash outer space. Both expressed contempt for biology, e.g. Catholic, e. Catholic repression of sexuality and transhuman use of derogatory terms such as meat space. Both are motivated by fear of death and presumably of life too, since one engenders the other, literally via by natural selection. Both reject the limits of existence on Earth and promulgate a fantasy that justifies exceeding those limits. The danger isn't that the fantasy will be realized, but that deluded people will make Earth unsuitable for life far sooner than would have been otherwise in the case. Unlike mere misanthropy or misanthropy, anti-humanism is mis misanthropy or misanthropy, the hatred of all human beings. Anti-humanism is distinguished by reverence for non-human life. Biological diversity is considered an axiomatic value and contrasted with the ugliness and sterility of human monoculture. Earth is described as a wrecked planet, Kurt Vonnegut, and various measures are called to prevent further damage, the most obvious being drastic reduction or elimination of the human population. The pre-human fecundity of Earth is idolized and provides a reference for de demonstrating impoverished, impoverishment of ecosystems. This relates to the shifting baseline syndrome posited by Jeremy Jackson and others, in which each successive generation wrongly assumes the degree of biological diversity they observe was also seen in previous generations. The central paradox of anti-humanism is that humans evolved and are therefore no more or less natural than any other living thing. Stephen Jay Gould argued convincingly that evolution doesn't converge on anything except fitness of, for conditions. There are no good or bad organisms, just ones that survive, and mostly ones that don't. Richard Dawkins went even further and described organisms as mere transport for genes, in which case the DNA we share with all other eukaryotes is the winner, regardless of what humans do. One proposed resolution is that humans are malignant life, as argued by A. Kent McDougall in Humans as Cancer. This sidesteps the problem, however, because cancer is also natural and closely related to viruses. The higher order question is ethical. Why is malignancy bad? And from what point of view is its badness determined? The paradox of human naturalness could possibly be resolved by arguing that sentience is not intelligence, but the ability to feel pain and pleasure. 
What distinguishes human from other primates is the existential suffering that, that results from self-knowledge, particularly fear of death. Since humans have such capacity for suffering, we should have equally developed empathy. But instead, we succumb to corruption, creating hellish conditions for humans and non-humans alike. Thus, despite our naturalness, humans can and should be blamed for wrecking the planet, precisely because we're capable of feeling remorse for having done so. If we're unable to reform ourselves, as seems increasingly to be the case, we should have the decency to step aside and give other organisms a chance. Apes might re-evolve back into us, but they might not. And either way, it won't be our fault. Whoa! So, this is basically saying that we're fucked and the polar ice cap stuff, we've done it and it's real. Species holocaust. Humans are carrying out a ferocious assault against non-human life. Even though our rate of population growth has declined slightly since the 1970s, the rate of species extinctions continues to accelerate. The rainforests are burning, the polar ice caps are melting, the oceans are dying, and the deserts are spreading rapidly. By conservative estimates, we are exterminating an entire species every 30 minutes. When I say exterminate, I mean that species is vanished forever, irretrievably lost. We have permanently erased its genetic information from the Earth's hard drive. The only phrase I know that adequately describes our behavior is species holocaust. I use the word holocaust because it's usually associated with the worst atrocity humans have ever publicly admitted blame for, the Nazi holocaust. To those who, were, who will ev er, er, inevitably accuse me of being disrespectful to the millions of victims, I say this. The problem is not that my use of the word holocaust lessens the sufferings of humans. The problem is that we are so indifferent to the suffering of non-humans that no word other than holocaust has resonance for us. Despite the Nazis' considerable efforts, Jewish culture survives to this day. Not so for the millions of entire species that humans have exterminated just in the last century. This statement is profoundly offensive to most people, but for the wrong reason. People are offended not because I confront them with the hideous atrocity in which they actively collaborate, but because I dare to suggest that non-human life could have as much value as human life. Whoa. Many humans believe that the Nazi atrocities were an aberration and exception, but in my view, they were a predictable extension of industrial techniques that had already been used on animals for 50 years. Pictures of concentration camps disturbed me, not because of the piles of bodies, but because the technology, train cars, barbed wire, electrical fences, smokestacks, looks so familiar. We use the term rendering to describe the process by which an animal is converted into raw materials. The Nazis literally built rendering factories for humans, and they hid them in remote areas for the same reason that we still hide slaughterhouses and factory farms today. Most Germans in the 1930s would have agreed that getting rid of Jews and gypsies was desirable, but that doesn't mean they wanted to do it themselves or even know how it was done any more than we would want to kill cows or watch them be skinned and torn to pieces. Woo, we are getting into some deep stuff today. I mean, does humanism, I guess, Humanism is about a philosophy, though, that's talking about an ethical kind of situation. And then we have to think ethically, what are we doing to the world that we're supposed to be taking care of? Or just so that it doesn't die on us. Many people believe... Oh, here we go. Six. Humanism. 
so here's what the anti-humanists say about humanism. Humanism is a doctrine, attitude, or way of life centered on human interests or values. Note the use of the word centered. Humanism is an anthrocentric worldview, a worldview centered on man. And behind that worldview is a belief that can be traced at least as far back as the early humanists of ancient Greece. The belief that man is the measure of all things. In other words, without man, events on earth would be meaningless because meaning comes from man. Athrocentrism can be seen as the root of a tree of related conclusions. That man is the uber species, the crown of creation, at the top of the pyramid of evolution. That the earth was made for man. That he can, should, and indeed must dominate it. The Christian religion spells out these conclusions quite clearly. For example, the first chapter of the Bible not only states that man should be fruitful and multiply, but that he should subdue the earth and have dominion over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. Anti-humanism rejects the notion that man is the measure of all things and substitutes a new, entirely opposite notion, that people are stupid monkeys. This should not be construed as an indictment of monkeys. The idea... Not the, the idea is not that monkeys are bad, but that humans are giving monkeys a bad name. The notion that people are stupid monkeys hinges on the word stupid. This word implies the existence of some value system which was not obvious and must be explained. In the anti-human value system, life is the most precious thing in the universe, and because humans choose to destroy life on an enormous scale, they are not only stupid, they are the lowliest, most unworthy species ever to evolve on Earth. Humans dominate the earth because they believe that other humans should, or that humans should dominate the earth. Manifest destiny. It's impossible to separate the belief of anthrocentrism from the behavior of domination. One justifies the other. This brings us to the second definition of anti-humanism, being against humans. Anti-humanism opposes humans as a species because human behavior is anti-life. Humans are making conscious choice to place their interest above the well-being of life. And this is not merely foolish or misguided. It is shameful and criminal. If humans are unable, for whatever reason, to exist in the way that supports life, then humans are unfit and must be eliminated. When Copernicus challenged the long-held belief that the Earth was the center of the solar system, he faced ridicule and punishment. Not because he threatened astrology, but because he threatened the anthrocentric establishment of his time the church. Anti-humanists should respect the same treatment or worse, should expect the same treatment or worse because today's anthrocentric establishment, industrial society, is vastly more powerful and dependent upon domination. And what's at stake is not merely our relationship to the universe, but our very existence. Woobity doo. Yeah. Hey, we've got the great Pacific patch that's the size of uh, Texas swirling around in between uh, the United States and uh, Hawaii. Oh, that's part of the United States. Inside the United States. <laughs> Although the, word, the water's international. Crazy. Uh, seven. This is fun. Religion. Uh, proof that humans are stupid. The most powerful military force in the world controlled by religious maniacs. Burning bush, talking snake, dividing the ocean in two with your bare hands, Jesus, Allah, Ganesh, Buddha, gods and goddesses, magical forces, heaven, angels with harps floating around on clouds, Easter bunny, Santa Claus, tooth fairy? Religion. For most of our existence, human knowledge has consisted primarily of superstitious nonsense, total idiocy, and lunacy. 
religion. Many of humanity's worst crimes against non-humans and humans alike have been justified by spirituality. Religion. Pagan witchy nonsense is no better than Christian or Muslim or Hindu or Buddhist nonsense. Some forms of spiritual nonsense led themselves more easily to social control and are therefore immediately dangerous, but all are equally irrational and therefore equally destructive of critical thinking and a grasp of reality. Religion. People are programmed biologically to be gullible, to love simple-minded solutions, and to hate cognitive dissonance, paradoxes, and contradictions that require complex thought. I love complex thought. I... Okay. Spirituality as an illness. Religion. Just because humans are susceptible to spirituality doesn't make it desirable behavior. Humans are also susceptible to greed, xenophobia, murderous rage, and other many destructive behaviors. Religion, in theory, has an interest in limiting or eliminating destructive human impulses. Religion, human childlessness and gullibility has been overcome with tremendous effort. And despite much violent opposition, Copernicus, Darwin, etc., what progress toward real knowledge humans have made has been severely limited by the irrational constraints of imperialism, mass society, etc., religion flat earth the earth is the center of a solar system universe only 6,000 years old all believed until very recently and still widely believed uh it goes on and on about how ridiculous religion is psychologically underpinning fear of life and death i mean ah, humanism anti-humanism What's the solution, everybody? Solutions. Solutions can be divided into two broad categories. Those that directly eliminate some or all human population and those that modify the human population's behavior, whether voluntary or involuntary. In the cancer analogy, the first solution referred to as the eliminationist strategy can be likened to surgery or chemotherapy, effectively cutting out poisoning or otherwise eliminating the problem. As with cancer, there is some risk the host won't survive the operation. We had to destroy a village in order to save it. But the cert certain destruction that will follow from inaction greatly outweighs this risk. In addition, this risk is quite low as demonstrated by life's amazing resilience and the face of many previous global catastrophes. Even if we were able to detonate all our nuclear weapons at once, the earth would certainly still support bacteria and probably simple plants and insects. It's plausible, even likely, that 50,000 years later, evolution would already be well underway again, with countless new species filling its many vacant niches, whereas the odds of humans, or even most mammals, surviving is such an ex uh, to such an event are close to zero. Short of nuclear holocaust, what other intervention strategies could act quickly enough to be decisive? perhaps a pandemic, as explored in the fictional movie 12 Monkeys, but this is far-fetched. In reality, it would be very difficult to engineer a pathogen suitably virulent and to distribute it widely enough. Humans are weedy by nature and therefore amazingly adaptable and resourceful. It's likely some portion of humanity would develop a resistance or otherwise survive the scourge, even assuming plants were made for a second round to finish off the survivors. Uh, the chaos resulting from the total collapse of industrial society would make it difficult to ensure success. The survivors might coexist relatively peacefully with their environment 
for a time as aboriginal people did with for most of human history but cultural evolution would still occur setting a stage for the resurgence of agriculture accumulation of wealth division of labor and all the rest of civilization this points to a fundamental problem with the eliminationist surgical solution as with cancer there's no easy way to be sure we got it all it's too easy to allow a remnant of humanity to survive and since the surgery implies loss of the tools required for further surgery i.e nuclear weapons germ warfare etc there's no second chance See, that's crazy. So I don't believe in this anti-humanist stuff because I'm not, I don't think that we should save the planet, kill yourself. Like, uh, so I, I mean, I just, I don't know what to tell you guys. Anti-humanism is uh, a little more extreme, like, Terrorizing the rich is a form of psychological warfare primarily used for symbolic value. Even if it's only succeeded for a short time, it could still accomplish its main goal of convincing people it doesn't pay to be rich. Even a temporary rejection of affluence as an organization principle of society would buy desperately needed time. Not only time for nature, but also time for alternative role models to gain traction. See, that's the crazy thing about this is it's like... Uh, I mean, there are, there's too many people. Well, and we just keep, it's the problem is that we want too much and Americans, we're awful. We want so much. We want so much stuff and we just rape the world for it. And I mean, look at the Vietnam War. No one talks about how many species of butterflies were probably exterminated by napalm. We don't even think about it. We're like, oh, monkeys, oh, whatever in the forest, oh, napalm, soylent, agent green. What is it? Agent orange, agent green, soylent green, agent orange. All right. So I'm going to leave you guys with some happier notes here. We're going to talk about Martha Stewart and Snoop Dogg. Here's Martha Stewart and Snoop Dogg making brownies. I, I love I love Martha Stewart and Snoop Dogg, by the way. Together they're amazing. I bet I bet you didn't have to do any baking at McDonald's. Yeah, I did. You did? What'd you bake? Egg McMuffins. Oh. <laughs> okay, yeah. Now you add your one and a half teaspoons of vanilla. Which one is vanilla? Over there. Vanilla is burgundy? Brown, yeah. Why they call it vanilla and it's burgundy? <laughs> Oh, vanilla. vanilla doesn't mean white. It means vanilla. Okay. It's the flavor. And okay, three quarters of a teaspoon of salt. I'm confused. But can't you wrap while we're doing this? Tell me what you're doing and wrap. Trying to bake some brownies, but we're missing the most important part of the brownies. Which is, which is, which is, which is. No sticks, no seeds, which no Which is, stems. which is. <laughs> You want green brownies? Yes. He wants green brownies. Brownish green brownies. Greener the better. Greener the better. <laughs> One cup plus two tablespoons of flour. I thought that was all like passe. So all of the flour just had a little bit at a time, just to get it all mixed in there. Okay, now I know it just looks so like pancakes now. We're making like pancakes now. Yeah, I like what you were saying. Okay, mixing the flour, just like this. This will taste good. Make me a kiss. Oh. <laughs> Especially if it's green. Especially if it's green. <laughs> but that was 
wasn't my idea. That wasn't my idea. But that wasn't works. my idea. But it works. It works. It works. It works. Christmas Cookie Day is finally here with Renee Fleming and Snoop Dogg. Vanilla is burgundy? Brown, yeah. Why do they call it vanilla and it's burgundy? <laughs> Only on the next Only Martha. Yay, Martha. Yay. I love you, Martha. You're so funny. Uh, I love that she's embracing uh, marijuana culture uh, and being a badass about it. I mean, right? She looks great, too. She's like 73 and she looks amazing. I'm going to look up some more for you guys. There's there's some about trees that's very, very funny. Okay. Uh, where's Christmas trees? Okay. Snoop Dogg and Martha talk trees. We cooking, babe. Let me know, we didn't have a mantle, please. We still had stockings. We hung them by the door or where we can hang them at. No, we, we had a big tree. And uh, one year I covered my tree in blue angel hair. It looked so stupid. <laughs> it was the worst decoration I ever did. Do you love colored trees? Because I like white trees. Oh, no, I have, I have, I, I think I have about 25 trees in my house at Christmas time. I like the white ones. I have gold so trees, white trees. I have a pink tree. I have a tinsel tree. I have a turkey feather tree. Oh, yeah. I'm yeah. coming over. Yeah. Don't you, you worry about nothing. So many trees. Every room has at least two or three trees in it. Well, my, I have a lot of trees. Um. <laughs> <laughs> I, knew I have it was a lot coming. of trees at my house I knew in different coming. rooms as well, Martha. <laughs> I have trees upstairs, downstairs, <laughs> in my man cave. There are trees everywhere. Trees in the man cave? Trees yeah, under the seat, cave. trees in the trunk. I guess, <laughs> I guess I would be considered a, a botanist, right? Definitely. Yeah. Arborist. An uh, arborist? Yes. Arborist with a little botany in it. <laughs> Well, that was fun. That's because that's Snoop Dogg and Martha, and they are awesome. And I hope that they keep, like, being friends and that they put things together. Uh, I, I can't believe they don't have um, their own frozen foods line yet. It would be, um, here we go, here's another one. Uh, Snoop makes mashed potatoes. Yeah, absolutely. I'm in. Mashed potatoes. We're back again. Uh-huh. Um, the potatoes have been boiled. Here, I've never done it with a machine. Yeah, that, well, it's easy. So how do you do it with a... Yeah, we in the hood. We like... Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so just peel the potatoes. Uh, you can peel that one with your fingers. Peel it? Or a knife. Like peel it back? No, this one. This one needs to be peeled. See? Like this? Just take the peels off. Peel. Like making fresh skin. fries. The skin. We make French fries. That skin ain't good. No, no, yo, no, just the skin. Just, just the skin. Look, this. Just peel the skin off. Oh, see? you want me to take the skins in yeah, off of it? The My skis in. Whatever. It is. The chip wrapping. Okay. So you have a, you have your own vocabulary. Now you are really responsible for your vocabulary, right? You are the inventor of it. Yeah. So much. So much. Okay. And does everybody understand you? I mean, do your kids no, understand you? No, they don't. 
<laughs> and, and you know what's crazy, Martha? What? I don't even understand it, so that's oh. the great part about it. You just have fun with it. I just it. have fun talking. And so uh, you have a new album coming out yes, or, uh, uh, for Christmas, right? Yeah, I put out oh, so, a Christmas Oh, so like, are you going to sing like traditional Christmas? Oh, no. Oh, no? Santa Claus. I got songs like Santa Claus Go Straight to the Ghetto. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. So this is this is going to be a rap a rap Christmas album. I got a couple of R and B songs, but they're just a little bit different. Okay, yeah, quite different. Okay, so that look I how did pretty, that. perfect. See, he's a he's a perfectionist. Now, you know that. that in there, and we'll just mash, mash those up and put the whole stick of butter. The whole thing. Yeah, we love butter. Don't you love is butter? This bar, is this parquet or margarine? No, no, this is butter. This is butter? Real butter. I used to like that commercial. Unsalted butter, and look. Parquet. <laughs> <laughs> but we, we like, I use real butter. I don't, I don't use uh, parquet. Is that butter, too? No, this is cream cheese. Can I get a little bit of that? Yeah, right there. You have your whole eight ounces. Well, shake it down. Yeah, shake it down. Ain't it made? Yeah, that but that there. would do. <laughs> Mm, mm, yeah, mm. so these are rich. This is for Thanksgiving, this dish. This is for my mom's. This smells good. What is this again? Mashed potatoes. <laughs> Plain old mashed potatoes. They don't smell like this when we make them. <laughs> they are, aren't they good? Yeah. Yeah, they're going to be delish. You going to put black pepper on them, too? Put what? Black pepper. Oh, yeah, a lot of black pepper. Yeah, but we have white pepper for some reason, but I like <laughs> black pepper. Here, now, a, whole, a cup of, a quarter of a cup of warm milk. <laughs> and a quarter of a cup of heavy cream. Because you're skinny. You, you, you dance all the time and, and run around. I'm shape, baby. I'm athletically built. That's yes. what we call this size. You, right are. you are. You are really good. Yes. So athletically built. Salt to taste. A little bit of salt. Sprinkle and a little bit. And pepper to taste. This that's, is that's white, white pepper. pepper. I ain't never seen white pepper. Y'all get Smell. Smell. I don't like that. I like black pepper, okay. man. Hold on. Can we have black pepper? Step y'all game up. Come on. They're, they're just being you, fancy. They're, they think they're. Thank you, they, love. They think they're being, uh, you know, extra yeah, see, that's fancy what I here. Right here, Martha. I don't so know So put about black that. pepper in. I agree. Yes. Yes. So. My granny would be proud of me right now for this. What I'm doing. So now, are you going to perform at the inauguration? If I'm uh, admitted to. I'm so excited about it, aren't you? Man, I'm so excited. I'm I can't wait. I'm thrilled about it. So, here, so you giving up black pepper? So you just beat these until they're really soft. And go to four them, now? Yeah, you can, you can go up higher, yeah. See, this is a great machine. It's lovely. You like the color? I love it. That blue is Would smooth. it go in your kitchen? It really would. That's it's like good. baby blue right here. Yeah, it's gorgeous. So, um, so can I add something to it? What? Yeah, what do you want to add? Hold on. Uh oh. Let's see what Snoop's gonna add to mashed potatoes. A little bit what of this. What is that? A little bit of this yak yak. Look at this body. You know that. <laughs> <laughs> That's cute. You what see, is that? You like her body? Yeah, her I body do looks too. good. See? Look. Yeah. Her dress is too low though. I gotta pull it up just a little bit. Yeah. There it is. Okay. Her shoulder. Yeah, that should come down a little bit. Hey. Oh. <laughs> See, oh we ain't even God. we ain't even had none of it to drink yet, oh and it's so already. Oh my mashed potatoes. Yes. Uh oh, you just pour. Oh, oh you can pour. Yeah, just a I, little I bit. I wouldn't. Don't add any to mine. I'm just gonna add a little bit in. Just a little bit in mine, Mark. Okay. Just a little bit. I need to shake. Something happened. It's invisible. <laughs> <laughs> so is that um, is that cognac? Yeah, that's some that's some oh, brand new cognac fantastic. by Landy. 
the Landy? Yeah. yeah. That's a very fun. Did you design the bottle? You or know, I like had to do it. It's my style right here. That's oh, okay. gloves. So I'm gonna leave. So, I'm gonna leave her out there. So this is the potatoes. <laughs> yours is done mm. already, huh? Yeah. Well, you can taste them if you want. I want to taste mm. yours. I don't trust mine. Taste that. Just a little mm. bit more I don't salt, trust okay? Take a little bit. It's creamy and good. They should be hotter. I need some chicken wings. There you go. Snoop Dogg and Martha Stewart are good friends. And they make me laugh. And I thought that he was going to put weed in there, but he didn't. Instead. Instead he put cognac, that weirdo. That weirdo. Oh, Snoop Dogg, you're so funny. Hey, coming up on... Coming up... At 2 o'clock, we have Some Call Me Tim with special guests Chris Ferdinandson and Kayla Keller. We're going to talk about God, gods, what they believe in. I hope they bring a lighter because I've got some trees to smoke and I have no lighter and no matches. So, hey, there's that. Then coming up at 4, it is Sparkast. Sorry, I'm so terribly distracted it was great last week last night actually really great hilarious comedians talking about weed uh we're gonna have that the sparkast podcast here on mutiny radio super excited after some call me tim wednesday's a big full day for me today's pretty crazy i'm gonna probably hit the eagle open mic and then uh i am at Piano Fight at 7 o'clock for Comedy Baseball with Team Mutiny. We need to get a sub in. But other than that, that's going to be great. Although also, I'm at 9 o'clock at Bricks in Oakland. If anybody's listening to this live and you want to go see some great comedy, Frosty Nugs puts on an awesome show every Wednesday at Bricks. And I'll be there. Nine o'clock. Excited for that late night show. So three three bookings tonight. I'm gonna hit Eagle. Then I've got Piano Fight. I've got a really cute outfit too. I wear these dumb little red underwears. And then Bricks. So I'm really super booked, which is awesome. I've been booked a lot lately, which is making me very happy. I don't have a problem with that. Uh, well, this has been a very interesting AltaCast. I would say, if you would not uh, agree with me, I'm sure you agree with me. Why wouldn't you agree with me? Uh, so I'm going to play one of my favorite songs recently. Because I am absolutely obsessed with Evan Rachel Wood of Westworld. And I'd like to play her song again. Escondido. Her band is called The Rebel and the Basket Case, uh, which is an homage to John Hughes films. And that's exciting. So here is their song that I love, love, love called Escondido.
Listen to one more song by them. Uh, their debut album was available everywhere on 31317, so they've been around for a while. But I just recently uh, have discovered them because I love Evan Rachel Wood. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 
a rebel in the basket case. Love them. They are my like new favorite band. Hey, I'm really excited because tonight at Piano Flight at 7 o'clock, we just found our substitute. It's going to be Keith D'Souza. He's going to be on Team Mutiny tonight at Piano Fight 7 o'clock. We have we lost our first game. We tied our second. We're going to see what happens tonight. I'm going to try to keep it loose uh, and not worry about it. I would really like to see a win, though. I'd like to see a win. But the problem is all I can think about is humanism and anti-humanism and critical thought and rumble in a basket case and Snoop Dogg and Martha and the Cavs losing two games in a row. Like, I just, I don't know what even to do, like... With, with these crazy things when they come up, I, I my brain is just like I'm not thinking about that, and so I I don't I'm terrible at improv, which is not great for me to be like Hey, come to the improv show tonight, even though I suck at improv, but it's fun to watch us uh, do our best. Me, Mike Spiegelman, and tonight Keith D. Yeah, yay! Come on. I miss you so much, LaToya, the Sheriff of Truth, but as you can see, we did it. Made it work. So I feel pretty good about it. So they have a a song that's called Today that's supposed to be, but I, I don't like that one. It's really poppy. It's not my favorite one. I like that Escondido one. That's my favorite. Uh, let's listen to... One live version of Rebel Basket Case.
right, that has been that's been the show today. I did it by myself. Aren't we proud of me? We're so proud of me. We're so proud of me. I did it. It's hard, you guys. It's hard. Uh, we'll be back next week, hopefully, with Latoya, the Sheriff of Truth, and some news. Until then, please enjoy the breaker. You tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a patter? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of Mutiny Radio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. MutinyRadio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shitface McRat. <laughs> Hey everybody, listen to the Weekly Review with Roman every Friday from noon to 2 p.m. This is an unapologetically anti-capitalist program. We interview community organizers, activists, and artists. We talk about ways you can take action right now. So listen in to the Weekly Review every Friday from noon to 2 p.m. brings you visual and auditory mind control. For the best graphic design, physical merchandise, and live music promotion, go to www.subliminalsf.com and check out their hilarious t-shirts and super cool bands at clubs and bars all over the Bay Area. Subliminal SF creates amazing flyers, posters, and design for every need. So go now to www.subliminalsf.com and experience what this wonderful local business has to offer. Good evening there, my friends here at MutinyRadio.fm. Chester Cashcock here, and giving you my love and regard as well as movies over there. And uh, I just wanted to let you guys know that any time I go swimming in my vault of rare coins and piles and piles of filthy cash, I can't help but listen to Pamtastic's Comedy Clubhouse every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. I mean, if anyone who knows anything about comedy knows that Pamtastic's books the best of San Francisco and Beyond's Underground Comics. It's a great showcase, and they have a fun time at Pamtastic's Deep in the Mission District, where you can laugh off your tushy for a mere five dollars every Friday to 10 p.m. And I laugh because five dollars, I mean, that's what I use to wipe my tushy with. So to laugh it off for a mere five dollars is indubitious. 
But if you can't make it to Mutiny Radio, well, don't even worry. Don't fret at all. You can simply download the podcast post-show and giggle in the comfort of anywhere. Like your Aspen summer home on the mountain ridge with the kayak feeling. So then all you got to do is just go to podcastics.pcrcollective.org slash comedy clubhouse. Or you can listen live every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. as your host Pam Benjamin brings you the best comedy from San Francisco and beyond the universe. And what's better than the universe? <laughs> it's a cash cock, honey. Yeah. Well, hello, boys and girls. You know what a password is. That's a secret word that soldiers would use to get past the sentry and up to the front. Well, here's a password that gets you up to the front in all the right places. It's cannabis energy. It seems the faster you go, the more cannabis energy you need. So if you want to win, you have to have lots of cannabis energy. And the swellest way I know to get it is just by using Green Army Skincare. Boy, they're just crammed full of cannabis energy. They're more cannabis energy units in one lip balm tube than you use circling the base ten times or when you ride your bike four miles across the city. And it's fast acting. Why, no sooner that you apply some balm to your mouth or pain areas, you practically feel the new strength in your muscles. And what's more, Green Army Skincare is a good, wholesome product. They're made with body-nourishing cannabis and other natural ingredients. So go out there today and pick up some Green Army Skincare products from your local cannabis procurement center. Join thegreenarmy.com. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, we'd like to invite you down to Bender's Bar and Grill in the heart of the Mission District in San Francisco at 806 South Van Ness. We've got great food by our kitchen counter offer, burgers, tater tots, tachos, corn dogs, all sorts of good stuff like that. They're open from opening until 11 p.m. most days of the week, except Saturday. Uh, every Saturday night, we've got live rock and roll, some of the best local bands in San Francisco, and touring acts as well. Come on down, 10 p.m., rock and roll, only night of the week. We have a $5 cover charge, always 5 bucks for live rock and roll. We're open from 4 p.m. until 2 a.m., Monday through Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, 2 to 2. Come on down, have some drinks with us. We've got Whiskey Wednesday, Tequila Tuesday, and we've always got the Steve McQueen special. Shot a bullet bourbon and a can of California lager for 8 bucks. Come down and enjoy our patio. It's open uh, in the afternoon, not really in the evening, but a lot of good folks hanging out back there. Come on down, give us a shot. Drop by the bar, make some friends. Thanks, folks. Bender's Bar and Grill in the heart of the Mission District, San Francisco, California. With a happy hour every Monday through Friday until 7 p.m. Don't miss it. Go to Bender's Bar. Big supporter of the Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival 2018. Oh yeah, it goes down. Come smoke with your boy. Grinder. Spark is San Francisco's premier cannabis dispensary with a focus on serving and educating patients for seven years. Spark is dedicated to creating the best in-store experience with its extensive menu, friendly staff, and one of the few cannabis vape lounges in San Francisco. Spark welcomes you to visit its two great locations as a medical patient or for recreational adult use in 2018. 
Spark is located at 1256 Mission Street between 8th and 9th and at 473 Haight Street at Fillmore. Both locations are open until 10 p.m. every night. Spark staff looks forward to serving you. Coming at these bitches and all these snitches hitting switches going back to riches. Rainbow Grocery, a worker owned and operated